With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Pad up. It's the Australian Cricket Podcast. And here are your hosts. Welcome to the final Australian Cricket Podcast of the Year. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel, a.k.a. Menas. And joining me for this special edition of the show, have Joe. How are you, Joe? Menas, I am very well. And what a huge 2016 it's been for Australian cricket. It's been a very big 2016. And the other panellists to help us get through all the cricket after a long absence from the show. Welcome back, Gav Joshi. How are you? I'm very well. Thanks for having me back. I thought you didn't want me back, but then I received a nice phone call. And um, yeah, I took, took it up and... Here I am for the last show of the year. Well, you've, you've torn yourself away from your Cricket Australia desk to come on the show, so great to have you on. And, and this episode, we're going to wrap up the Gabba test. We're going to preview the Boxing Day test. We've got the commentary critique back. And then after much, much outcry from the listeners, we're going to wrap up the first half of the Shield season. But before we get into all that, I want to ask you, Gav, about the shock inclusion to the Boxing Day test squad. The Australians have brought in young all-rounder Hilton Cartwright on this very podcast. You nominated him as a player to watch. So tell us, tell us and the listeners a little bit about young Hilton Cartwright. What are his strengths? What are his weaknesses? Yeah, I think, look, the thing that impressed me about three or four months ago watching him during the eight tour was he opened the batting during the one-day format, and the pitches up in Townsville had plenty in it. The ball was zipping around, and he showed great character, good technique to get through that sort of the white ball phase and, you know, 10, 15 overs. And then he had all the shots. He has plenty of power. He's born over in Zimbabwe, I think, in a small village, very close to where David Pocock, the Australian rugby union captain, was born. So he comes from that. A lot of his cricket development came through in Western Australia because when he came across, he didn't attend school. So best way to make mates was through a cricket club. And that's how his cricket career started. Uh, fantastic. What I like about him his bowling as well, is he he's not one of those persistent bowlers who nag away outside the off stump. He's a perfect 
sort of the third seam, well, the fourth seamer, that all-rounder, you just want him to bowl, you know, those two or three over bursts and make something happen. And that's what Hilton Cartwright will make something happen. He'll surprise the batsman with this sharp bouncer. He's got a very good bouncer. He's a very fit lad. He's quite powerful. Uh, Western Australia been very impressed. Your favourite, Glenn Maxwell, was really impressed by <laughs> Hilton Cartwright during the A-Tour, uh, given his work ethics. I think there's plenty of promise. He's the same age as Mitch Marsh. So we is say, he a better batsman than Mitch Marsh? I, I, I personally think he is. I, I mean, given what I saw, I, I think he's got all the calibre, especially when he's opening the batting. Coming at number six, you know, we have a bit of stability there with Hanscom now at number five. I, I think he's going to be enormous. I think he... Given what's happening to Mitch Marsh at the moment, he's probably better suited to that number six uh, in the Australian team. Well, big raps there from Gav Joshi. Let's now go and wrap up the Gabba test, the first test against Pakistan. It was an absolute nail-biter in the end. Australia eventually won by a mere 39 runs after being a long way in front of the game. But I want to ask you guys about the biggest issue that really stood out for me in that test. What do you guys think of the field side pool? Starting with the big issues, Menas. Um, I think a great innovation from the Gabba. Um, what a fantastic way to take in a day's test cricket. I think Shane Warne just continually kept making references to whether they clean the pool regularly enough. I think it was a reflection on him more than anything else. His sense don't you of humour. <laughs> yeah. What does he do in the pool? I'm exactly. not going to go and swim in his pool. <laughs> Exactly. I thought it was great optics, yeah. though. It reminded me of those baseball stadiums in America where they have, like, aquariums and pools and all types of things by the ground. I thought it was really good, so they should do it every year. Well, and if you wanted to have it, it has to be up in Brisbane. You wouldn't have it at the, at the MCG because you oh. might get in there maybe for two hours in one day when the sun comes out, and then most of them will be after that will be freezing. So Gabba, perfect place. December, humid, hot, people, you know, drinking their beers and then jumping in the pool. It sounds like a backyard party. Great innovation. Now back to the cricket. I think what we saw from this Pakistan team was that they are real fighters. I think after a couple of days, everyone thought they were just going to fall over in a heap and Australia was going to steamroll them. But what they did was really work themselves back into the game. And I think we gained a lot of respect for them and uh, for the rest of the series. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a huge amount of character in that side. The one thing that was a bit disappointing for me, Manners, was that you know they, they started the game pretty slowly and I think quite pedestrian from a tactical perspective. How many times do touring sides have to come out here and be told that you've got to pitch it up and you've got to keep as many slips in play as possible? I, I think the trap that touring teams fall into is they get too defensive too early. Um, and I think that um, the, the captain or Huck, I think, fell into that trap in the first few days because if you've got somebody like Steve Smith batting and you've got a defensive field and you've got your spinners on it's it's basically an inevitability that they're going to play themselves into some good nick yeah I, I totally agree with that I mean I, I was perplexed why Pakistan played three left arm seamers I mean that's just not the go look I think Pakistan got it wrong if they if they had the third seamer to be a right-hander would have give a little bit of variation to the attack and they don't become as predictable and Rahat Ali of course was probably the the poor performer out of all those four bowlers who played for them. 
I agree. And, and I think let's go back to the beginning of the test. Australia won the toss and elected to bat. And there the, the test really went to script. Australia batted well, but there was really good Pakistani bowling at times, but they just weren't able to capitalise and take their chances. They failed to refer Steve Smith when he edged one. They missed a couple of crucial chances. And you'd have to say that when you reflect on the end result, those early missed chances uh, proved very costly. Absolutely. I think there was a, a relatively uh, routine catch that the keeper missed off Smith and that could have changed the entire me- momentum of that first innings, Gav. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to be dropping Steve Smith as well on 53. You have some Peter Hanscom coming in. Uh, Nick Maddinson, we know, hasn't scored a run yet. Well, we probably has, but four runs, I don't uh, So that would have put a lot of pressure on Australia. So missed opportunities, yes. I also feel that Australia had the better of the conditions throughout the Test match. Pakistan faced, you know, the seeming ball under the lights a little bit more. So all the advantages were towards Australia, to be fair. But in saying that, when you get the opportunities, you've got to make the most of them, especially when the conditions aren't to your favour. And I think Pakistan, their slips catching in 2016 has been horrendous. Poor Mohammad Amir could have had 50 wickets this year, but he's only down to about 30-odd. So... You, they got to take chances. Slip catching is so important in Australia. And, uh, you know, that's where Pakistan probably let Australia off the hook. It proved vital. So there was great performances at the top of the order for Australia. Matty Renshaw made 71 in his second test. And didn't he look in just great nick compared to his innings in, uh, in Adelaide? He was flowing. He hit sixes. It was a, a really, really good innings. Great signs there. Yeah, great signs. And also, he's getting really good parenting from his parents because they seem to give, give giving him good grounding because they didn't go and watch him bat. They went to his sister's graduation. So talk about um, keeping you on a level pegging early on. Just, no, we're not coming. Imagine if he got 100, what they might be feeling, though, because he looked all good to getting 100 on that first day. He batted like what you have to do on that first day at the Gabba pitch. Leave Mm. and leave the ball well and just wait for the ball. I just like how he sticks to his little game plan. That's wait for the bowlers to bowl to him and then work away through your pads and off your hips, just like a typical left-hander. His style reminds me more of Matthew Elliott. I agree, uh, yeah. There's talk about Matthew Hayden, nah. but he's more like Matty Elliott, and you just saw him really expanding his game once he got past a 50 as well. He's got a yeah. smaller schnoz than uh, Matt Elliott. <laughs> <laughs> I was really impressed with the way he used his feet to the spinners. He hit a couple of beautiful cover drives um, off Yassir Shah, and that's a very good sign for India, I think, men is, you know, some... Mate, you, there's no good signs for India. There's no, can we not talk about India? Fair and, enough. Renshaw's going to struggle over there. We're, We're not England, struggle. though, are we? You're the supreme optimist. Now we go to the, the segment in every show that's unplanned, which is the Steve Smith segment, where we talk about his records. So Smith, mate, just reeled off 130 this week. It was his first test hunt against Pakistan. He is the sixth quickest batsman to 16 test centuries. He only averages in the first innings of tests 94.66, just 94. That's not bad. It's his third day-night first-class century, the most by any player. Another phenomenal innings from Steve Smith. Despite edging one and the Pakistan team not appealing or referring it, which is perplexing to me. 
I can't yeah. imagine you got four people in the behind the wicket and none of them thinks he's touched it. Well, uh, I mean, will they sleep or something? <laughs> well, you know, we, we like to um, comment on the commentators, and I think Ian Healy summed it, summed up the moment well. He said, "Waka, we're about those Pakistanis. They seem to be just painted on." <laughs> that probably hit the nail on the head because how could you miss such a blatant edge? T- to be fair, I don't think the commentators picked it up with the pitch mic either. Well, I, I, I thought it was pretty close on the naked eye. I was yeah. like, "Wow, that looks like he's." He's got really close to that. So, I don't know, if you, you're 20 metres from the bat, surely you have some idea he's hit it. It was just, and it proved very costly for him, allowed Smith to get his century. But let's talk about the emerging star in Australian cricket. Peter Hanscom came out and made a really good 105. He's made in test century. What I liked about it was he was able to battle through the tough times. His strike rate was down in the 40s for much of the innings, but he was patient and worked his way to a century. And, and Gav, you've got a bit of background on this, talking about parents and the sort of upbringing he's had Peter Hanscom's got quite a moving backstory yeah I mean he'll, he'll play he, the Boxing Day test match and no doubt I'm sure he'll be missing his father and sadly he uh, he's no longer with Pete and, and his family who passed away earlier this year due to I, think, I believe it was cancer and who played an enormous role in developing Pete through the younger days every time Pete came back from, from primary school down to high school would take him down to the nets and one of the important aspects of his technique against spin bowling which we saw was he's father actually as soon as he started throwing balls by the bowling machine or via the arm he just wanted Pete to run down the pitch and try and meet the ball in the full doesn't matter how quickly he was bowling and he said he really developed his play through that so he's played a huge role in Peter's career development 25 years of age and it's going to be really sad that you know he's not going to be there on boxing day to watch his son you know go out and maybe get another ton in front of the big sort of the Victorian crowd. It's interesting to know that that's how he was kind of groomed because that's almost the complete antithesis to what he does now, which is stand incredibly deep in his crease and has a natural movement back. So, you know, I I don't know, men, as there was a question mark as to whether that that technique has longevity, but he seems to be so in control of it, doesn't he? Like, he, he, he played some beautiful drives so he can still get forward, but... Is it going to work in all conditions to be basically almost batting on your stumps? Well, we had Trent Woodhill on here on the show, I think about a couple of months ago, and he said we were playing on a different pitch. And just prior to that game, I said, Pete, just try batting out of your crease. Leave the technique as it is with the, you know, the back lift and so Just try it. So there is development there. You've got to back your strength. Steve Smith's a classic example. Grant mm. Smith going back. And, you know, there's been cricketers Greg Chappell Greg Chappell there's so many of them who just don't follow the textbook but still go on to make well I'm sure Steve Smith's going to make 10,000 test runs but it works for him that's what's got him to into the Australian test team we saw him scoring a fabulous 100 and the bowlers because he's not a pure sort of batsman don't have to adjust their length they need to bowl that meter and a half fuller and as we've seen as as you've correctly mentioned that's not easy to do, especially for a foreign attack and just bowl that, you know, what persevered as a half volley. Because almost you've got to bowl that to Peter Hanscom. And when you make slight mistake, he'll capitalise on that, as we saw once 
he got to about 50 and 60 onwards. Yeah. Look, I, I think we're always the first to jump on the selectors. I just want to say credit to the selectors for the selections of both Renshaw and Hanscom. I think, you know, now two tests in, they both look like the real deal. I think they're going to play a lot of tests for Australia. I think Mark War I heard during the week saying, how about we get a rap for once? Um, so, Junior, I'm, I'm giving you the rap here on the Australian Cricket Podcast. But also a rap for Peter Hanscom. He took the opportunity in the Shield game yes. that, and scored a double set that yeah. put him in front of the selectors. An amazing stuff, yeah? Yeah, no, just going on what you said about selectors, there is two different parts. Sometimes we've been so sort of narrow-minded, we've got to pick a 20-year-old, throw mm. them into deep end, but this is a perfect balance. We have Peter Hanscom, 25 years of age, who's played, you know, four or five years of Shield cricket, and we have basically a, a raw deal in what's Matt Renshaw, who's gone on to prove himself as well. So there's not always one street yeah. method. One of my highlights from Australia's first innings was the battle Yazir Shah had with Steve Smith. Such Yazir Shah is such a great bowler to watch, and he sort of is evocative of those days when Shane Warne was bowling, not in the, the same bravado, but the sort of energy he brings to the crease and an enthusiasm for bowling. And even though he was toiling away, it wasn't easy for him. He just just had really ran in there and gave it a real rip. And I thought it all goes well for the next the rest next two tests. Yeah, I, I mean, as a devotee of leg spin bowling, I have to say I was a little bit disappointed in the first innings um, in that he wasn't trying to take a wicket with every ball. I think um, he needs more is, side spin, though. I think the wicket just wasn't turning enough for him. Yeah, I, I think that's possibly right. I, I, you know, I didn't realise that he's actually not a huge turner of the ball unless the conditions are right. But I think that the, the partnership between him and his captain um, in setting the right fields, particularly setting attacking fields, which will let him kind of drift the ball in onto the the stumps and then move it away the a la Shane Warne I think is going to be critical in these conditions I think they got into the a, a bit of a bad pattern in that first innings where he was just literally getting through his overs and not sort of thinking every ball how am I getting this guy out I think it's Misbah understands Yashu Shah's bowling as good as anyone I think and I think he knows that he's not a Shane Warne he, mm. you, Shane Warne on Channel 9 kept talking about how he should be pitching it outside off stump. But if that's not Yasir Shah's go, because he doesn't actually get the huge slider going, I think he was trying to get them sort of playing across the front pad, get that little lob onto short leg. And we saw very, you know, a couple of really close shaves with Renshaw and maybe they did overdid that tactic. But I personally think Yashu Shah bowled really well. I agree. Uh, and I think it'll be dangerous moving forward. Really dangerous. So Pakistan came out chasing... In reply to Australia's 400-plus total, they were one for 48 under lights, and they would seem to be going all right. And then it all went pear-shaped. They slipped to eight for 67. They were eventually all out for 142. Stark, Hazelnut and Big Bird all took three wickets. Lyon didn't get a wicket but had a stumping mist off him. I thought one of the highlights of this innings was the superb catching by Australia in the slips. They said afterwards they were all standing up closer because the pink ball doesn't carry as far. And we saw some really sharp catching, especially from Usman Kawaja, who was described by Julian Schiller from Triple M as looking stoned. Well, he didn't look stoned when he took those catches. 
No, and uh, Matt Renshaw at first slip, it's so important to have such a sort of a balanced slip cordon um, and people who belong there. Matt Renshaw, we don't really see someone playing his second test match, first test match, fielding in first slip, but clearly that he's got the credentials to field there. Steve Smith at second. Peter Hanscom, very good catch in the day and night test match in Adelaide Manors. I think he's very good in the gully as well. So, And it's so important to have that good cordon, especially at the Gabba, um, when the ball's zipping around and with the pace of Stark and Hazelwood. I think they got that absolutely spot on. Yeah, I, I think all of the great Australian teams through the years have had really cohesive slip cordons, and I think it sets the tone for the whole performance, really. I mean, you drop a catch in the slips in Australia, and it's such a release of the pressure valve. So I think we've got some guys who look like they're going to be in those positions for... for and it sort know, of plays a- on that 11v2 mentality out there when you've got a strong fielding unit that really gets behind the bowler. So I think that was really noticeable. Australia didn't enforce the follow-on. Then they came out and made five for 202 in the second innings. Smith just peeled off another 63. Kawaja made a polished 74. Peter can't put a foot wrong. Hanscom made 35 not out. Poor Nick Maddinson came out with nothing to lose but his wicket, and he did lose his wicket out for four. So that was a double failure for him. I actually think he had everything to lose and nothing to gain in that oh, yeah. kind of short. Yeah. Exactly. short Sorry, that's of, what I meant. Short amount of time. Um, men, as... What do you make of this whole debate around the uh, day-night tests and the, the the advantage of having you know bowling in the the night period being giving the game an imbalance? I disagree with it. And have, having a few tests now under lights, I think that what's evident is that it's actually not impossible to bat under lights. If you bat well under lights, you can get through. And I liken it to the first morning of it. Or when you go out in an er the first session in England, perhaps, and there's a bit overcast, still a bit of life in the wicket. If you're a good batsman, you have to get through that. And, and I think we saw, we've seen in the Adelaide and this test, that if you're a good batsman and you play well, you can get through. Pakistan played really poorly in that second night. That's why they collapsed. We saw at times in Adelaide, if you play well, you can get through. And I think it's a good thing. And I think the pitch was absolutely perfect. Kevin Mitchell Jr. only put, I think, two mils of grass on it. Now, Adelaide in the past, first test match, eight mils. They dropped that to about five or six mil. There was talk that, you know, you need to sustain that to keep the pink ball. Maybe, yes, it did get a bit soft. But I think it was a Gabba pitch designed just a normal... Gabba way. It wasn't sort of designed for the day and night test match. That's what I like. And the, we, the only complaint was though that it was too hard and it made the pink ball a bit softer than the red ball. Yeah, but you want you know you still want those Gabba sort of traditional bounce there. And and I think the wicket had that. I think the pitch was spot on. As you mentioned, it was poor batting by Pakistan. But let's face it, the bowling was exceptional. Not many batting orders around the world would have survived that spell from Stark and Hazelwood and even Jackson Bird. I thought they were just fantastic. Now, in the fourth innings, Pakistan was set a world record of 490. I think most pundits wouldn't have expected them to even make 290. I know, Joe, you were saying to me that Warney was going on record saying, ah, oh, 400's enough. Well, if Warney had set them 400, he'd have lost the game. And then we saw just a brilliant, that's a brilliant fight back from Pakistan. They got within 39 runs of that 490 total. Azhar Ali made 71. Yunus Khan made 65. Then Asid Shafiq made a brilliant 137 coming in at number six. It was his ninth test hundred in that position and the most by any number six batsman. The tail supported him and they managed to bring the game from the third afternoon all the way into a very tense fifth morning. 
And I, I want to ask both of you, did you guys ever get nervous and think, Pakistan, we're going to get it? And what did you think of Steve Smith's tactics? Yeah, well, I think on the, on the tactics, it relates a little bit to our previous question, because I know that he had in mind the fact that if he would have enforced the follow-on, they wouldn't have got the... Well, he potentially would have been giving Pakistan the advantage of bowling under the, the light. So you can see how it's having a huge impact on, on tactics. But I didn't mind the declaration. I mean, I think some people... Merv Hughes came out this week to say, if you've got the chance, you've got to bat aside completely out of the game, which he hadn't done because there was enough time to actually get those runs. But I think it would have taken a world record by some 70 runs to, to actually you know, for Pakistan to win it. I think it was a good declaration. Was he aggressive enough on the last morning, though, when he put the field out? Definitely not. And this this comes to my question that I put to you earlier. I think you cannot... You've, you've got to have every opportunity to have three slips and a gully in place in Australian conditions. And I think when they came out on that final morning and he and Shafiq was batting with one slip, if Mitchell Stark or Josh Hazelwood would have got a, a nick and it would have gone through second or third slip, I think we would have been all crying blue murder. I think there were a few that went through the yeah. third slip. Now, just going back to the declaration, to be honest, uh, Shafiq should have been out the night before. I mean, Steve Smith dropped a sitter. Um, there was another catch which was missed or a couple with the missed opportunities that probably were missed because there was no attacking field. I thought it was perfectly fine declaration. But but equally, um, you had Yunus Khan throwing away his wicket. If Yunus Khan and Shafiq could have got a, a partnership going at that stage of the game, um, who knows? They could have chased these runs down and it would have been just the... It would have been by far the greatest chase of all time. Yeah, and Yunus Khan's a big wicket. I think he's only 110 runs short of the most career runs in the fourth innings of test matches. He's got... F- oh, God, that's a Gav stat. Yeah, it, 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 it just, just pulls that out from Absolutely phenomenal. Brain. I mean, he led Pakistan to a world record chase of 380 against Sri Lanka just about a year back. So his fourth innings average menace is around 60. So he was the big wicket. And I think a few of the Pakistani journalists out there or in the newspapers I read were very disappointed with that shot because they felt that if, if Pakistan was to stand any chance, it was with Yunus Khan. But in, in, in saying that, even Wahab Riaz's wicket, I know mm. we talked about those extra sort of half an hour being played. Mm. Now, if Wahab's there next morning, I think something else could happen because he was hanging in there. So we did actually pick up the wicket. I know, yes, the bowlers will look a little bit pedestrian yeah, at Shafiq time. shouldn't have taken that third run to bring his century up. He should have gone to Stumps 99 not out. Yeah, but Wahab was doing okay. I mean, just for that you know reason. But I, I was perfectly fine with all the, I mean, the tactics in terms of declaration, putting them in. So the Australian Cricket Podcast supports Steve Smith, is that correct? Yeah, maybe a little bit more attacking. you got to get Shafiq out. You can't just you know target the lower order batsman i think that's where steve smith went wrong without bringing up an age-old debate it was pretty clear that he didn't feel like he could go to his spinner to clean up the tail on that on that fifth morning so there's is that there's an ongoing issue there right definitely well that was the 10th consecutive loss for pakistan in australia the most by any team away but it was also the third highest ever fourth innings total of a test so a great effort from them now let's look ahead now to the annual Boxing Day fixture. Will Hilton Cartwright play? I personally think they're going to go in that direction. I think they've realised that they they need someone in that top six that can bowl, and I think he'll play. I think he's a lock. I, I disagree. I heard comments from Darren Lehman yesterday saying it would be unfair to cut off Nick Maddinson when he's only had two opportunities. Against but that didn't the, help Callum Ferguson. No, but, but, but he made the distinction that 
that um, Maddinson's opportunities have been against the pink ball. I don't know how much you put un- under that argument. I-, I think there's no doubt that longer term, the selectors see the ultimate balance of the side inclu- being involving an all-rounder. So I think, you know, they, they pushed Mitch, Mar- Mitch Marsh hard. We know how many chances Shane Watson got. So I think that that is the ultimate um, balance. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, th- there's two ways of looking at it. I-, I-, I personally think he won't play. I think he's just been caught in, especially with the big bash going on to you know, to see what he's got in the nets as well. He's going to bowl a lot of overs there. Are the four bowlers we have good enough? That That's the big question up to the selectors and the team management. I don't think they should be looking at, you know, the what's happening and the workload. I know that's what they look at in modern-day cricket. It's simple as, are the four bowlers good enough? I personally think they are. But, you know, with the Sydney Test match back-to-back, that's where I think you know the doubts are going to be raised in their mind. I think they're good enough, but I think the actual question is because Lyon isn't bowling enough overs, the three seamers, I think, by the fifth day looked like they were tired and stiff. Yes. So I think the question is, with Nathan Lyon um, bowling a limited amount of overs, do you need an extra guy to take some load off the three quicks? Yeah, I was um, thinking Australia needs about 10 overs a day from somewhere, whether you can get that from Steve Smith or somebody. But what I think those 10 overs will do is it'll make someone like players like Hazelwood and Stark better. Because at the moment, Stark's bowling too much. We want to see him using short, sharp bursts like Mitchell Johnson was, where he can run in and bowl as quick as he can. But he's and we saw his pace down by the end. he's a end. different style of bowler, Menace. I, I think he's completely different style of bowler. I think he's, as much as you want him to do the sharp burst, that's fine. That, those tactics are fine when we go across to the subcontinent. But in Australia, he should be bowling those five, six over spells to work out a batsman because he's good enough. And the conditions here, you can't just go out and start bowling Yorker's first ball because there's other ways to dismiss a batsman. But we saw his pace really drop down. I think too many overs. Yeah, but he was still around that 145 mark. I mean... Mm, I'd like to see him up around 150. (laughs) Now, do we think Pakistan can get back in this series? Can they win in uh, Melbourne, perhaps? Because I think they can. With Yazir Shah, if they get an up-and-down MCG wicket, he could be deadly. Muhammad Amir bowling those in-swingers. They need to bat first and bat well exactly. in the first innings. They can't fall behind the game. Yes, that sounds you know a cliche statement, but it, they do. If they can get bat first in Melbourne, it might be difficult early on. They got to somehow scramble to three fifty. If they can put Australia under pressure, you never know with Yashir Shah. And if they get their selection right, I hope they pick the right team as well. I like the. This is where you mentioned Nathan Lyon, and this is why Pakistan can afford to play those six batsmen because Yashir can bowl those, you know, 30 or 40 uh, overs. That's where Australia's not getting them out of Nathan Lyon. Yeah, look, I think if you would have said Pakistan will lose by 50 runs and Misbar and Yunus won't make that many runs and and, uh, and Yasir Shah won't take a, a bag of wickets, you would have said, wow, that's a really good performance from Pakistan. So I think there's, if, if the wicket, if, you know, if the MCG and the SCG turn, I think, you know, Yasir Shah will play a much, much bigger role, obviously. Um, and I think we will see, you know, Misbah um, or Yunus will make a big score. So I think they're definitely in this series. I was so impressed with the bowling um, of Amir. I think he brought them back into that game with that spell in the first innings when it looked like we could have made, you know, 550. And he came back with a really good late spell. He's, a, he's just a class 
bowler, isn't he? Because he can produce swing, you know, at any stage of the innings, and he just always hits his spots. I mean, that was his best return since he's been back in the Test fold in this Test match. And As what I think's about Amir, though, what I like about him is he backs it up with a little bit of a prickly personality. <laughs> you know, he's not shy of having a few words. He's got that real fast bowler's demeanor that I think sometimes you need. Amir was terrific, but I like Wahab Riaz. I thought he was fantastic. He's normally the enforcer, the go-to man who bowled plenty of bounces, but I thought his accuracy and his probing line and length at the Gabba, and he probably found the really good length at the Gabba, which I was totally surprised because I thought Wahab's going to dish out all the short balls. There was not much reverse swing, and I thought he contained Australia, which is not Wahab Riaz's go. I thought he was fabulous. If he gets a bit of reverse swing, we saw his pace. I think he's very intelligent, and if that comes into the game at the MCG, him and Amir and Shah, they can really do some damage. But... Pakistan have to bat well in that They have first to take inning. their chances. They the have field. to take their chances, yes, of course. So that was our preview of the Boxing Day test. I think we can all look forward to some great cricket over the festive season. You're listening to the final Australian cricket podcast of this year. I'm with Joe and Gav, and it's now time for the commentary critique. Really big segment this week. Really big segment because we've had FM Radio, Triple M, have delved into the test cricket market. And I have to say, generally, I enjoyed the Triple M coverage of the Test match. I thought it was certainly different to the more classical coverage that you get on ABC or Macquarie Radio Network. But I thought it was energetic. You felt like you're at the cricket. Uh, the comedians and the different experts they had come in added to the coverage. What did you think, Joe? Yeah, Menas, I think this is a formula that Triple M have used successfully with the AFL um, and interesting to see it being applied to, to test cricket. I, you, you know that I'm not a massive fan of James Brayshaw and at the end of the day he is the one anchoring that coverage. Um, I think he's better in that sort of more light-hearted environment than he was in the Channel 9 commentary box. I thought so also with a lot of people that aren't you know noted commentators, he was able to keep them on point a few times. Mm. He was the one that would come in with the score every now and then. And, you know, you need that because you, when you're listening to the cricket, you want to know what the score is and stuff. You, you're happy to have the jokes and everything, but you need to know who's batting. And I thought his professionalism did come through a little bit with some of the comedians. Yeah, I, I agree. I think they could probably get the balance between the expert commentary um, and the sort of your jovial stuff a bit better. What did you think of Mick Malloy? They seemed to have Mick Malloy on a microphone and every now and then he would just come in with shot or something like he was sort of in the crowd. Do you like that sort of really relaxed sort of presentation? I mean, I sort of, it took me a while to get used to the first few minutes. I was like, oh, can you, you know, I just want to hear the commentary. But then once you get into it, it just feels like someone sitting next to you saying that. It's probably a good time that they're doing this commentary. I mean, with the big bash on and trying another sort of dimension to cricket commentary. And with sort of the targeting maybe the next generation who maybe don't want to hear a Chris Rogers, don't want to hear a Ian Healy, don't want to hear a, a Michael Clark. It's something different. It's not for the you know the cricket sort of nerds or the addicts like what we go. Uh, ah, it might be just yep, cricket's on. Oh yeah, this is a bit of fun. Listen in for twenty minutes, and that, there you go. And for those, it probably sounds like entertainment. But for the cricket addicts and the purists, I think Menas, you made a very good point earlier that skull 
huge return to the um, microphone because he So Kerry O'Keefe is back. He had a hiatus from the radio. Great to see him back out there. Spins a good yarn. Phenomenal yarn. He's funny as anything, but he's also one of the most incisive commentators in any form of the media. And he played in such a strong era of Australian cricket. And when he does hit the serious analysis, he really does nail it. He's not often off point. Absolutely. I think for, for all of his, you know, cackling that, that he might be famous for, he's actually a, one of the best cricket brains out there and we're all the better for having him back on, on the radio. Now, one of our listeners sent me a message saying that he thought Mark Howard is becoming the new sound of summer in Australia. He, you know, anchoring the Big Bash and now on the radio with Triple M. What do we think about him possibly being the new sound of summer going forward? Would you think Channel 9 would be looking at him as someone they could possibly poach to anchor their coverage? Because they're, they're sort of missing that anchor. And, you know, they often turn to a former test player. But maybe someone like Mark Howe would be, would be a way of shaking up Channel 9. Yeah, I, I agree. I've been so impressed with his big bash. I mean, just it's, it's almost has that calm demeanour. He's almost going out there and just be, he's not too focused about... You know, yes, he's watching the game, but he just lets the conversation flow like a, just a purist. And it just comes natural. And I think that's what you've got to have as an anchor. You shouldn't be trying way too hard. And I, I think especially going ahead, you know, Mark Nicholas, I think it's getting almost repetitive at times. Nobody will be as good as Richie, but Mark, uh, Mark Howard, seriously, in the next generation, I, I, if I was working for Channel 9, I would seriously have a look at a good look at him because I reckon he's there to stay. We're starting a TV war here. <laughs> Howard's going to get poached. And then, you know, you had other commentators. Nerily Meadows from Fox Sports. I really like her stuff. Uh, Gus Wallen, who obviously appeared on this podcast, is an inspirational story. Started off as a, a backpacking fan of the Australian team, now commentating on a test match. So all you listeners out there, keep the dream alive. His evidence of that, you know, he had Brett Lee, Julian Schiller, Isagua, Brad Haddon, Michael Slater. So it was a big, big cast of commentators, and I think that helped. And I think I spoke to you before we went on air, Joe, that one thing I liked was the choice. You've got Grandstand, Triple M and Macquarie Radio. You can listen to a session of each, and then no one is going to annoy you that much. Or you just pick out when your favourite commentators are on air and just listen to them. Good plan. Now... Let's move on to Channel 9, because I've got a little bit of a critique. I thought bringing in Braco Yunus was a good thing, but having heard him commentate for most of the Test match, I didn't think he added anything to the commentary. And I heard one stint where him and Mark Nicholas were commentating, and they were just talking about different things the whole time. Like, Mark Nicholas was trying to have a conversation, and Mark Yunus was just talking to himself. It didn't make for great listening. Well, I think there was one point where um, when Mark Nicholas said, were you ever conscious of, of making batsmen scared when you're bowling um, or, or worried about their, their well-being and he said something like I was a bit worried about you when I broke your hand and Mark Nichols said that's not exactly what we were looking for so they clearly didn't have the rapport going did they? No not at all and I think uh, Eunice it was a pretty disappointing performance in the box this but, test But you match. need a Pakistani voice in there because yeah. otherwise all you get is just the you know the yeah. one-eyed Australian um, mates of the current team all of that sort of stuff. Yeah it was either him or but was he Macram, maybe? Well, yeah, but Wazim and uh, Remy's Raja are tied up with stars, so I don't think it's within their contract to go and broadcast for another uh, channel. So that's probably why you can have Amir Sohail, but he's not the best one going around. You probably pick Wacker in front of Amir Sohail. So in that terms, they probably got best of the so, lot what's available. Was I being too harsh, Gav? 
I don't think so. Um, I've heard Wackart before, so maybe I wasn't too harsh on him. Either. Oh, you were expecting Yeah, that I level. was expecting... Maybe I had high expectations. Yes, I think way so. Way too high. Now, Gav, you said something to me before the show about Michael Clark has really come on as a commentator. And, and I was thinking about this. I think someone like Michael Clark really speaks to someone like you that really wants to get inside the game. He brings those little insights that perhaps the common listener not really interested in and probably goes over their head. But for someone like you, me, Joe, he does bring insights into the game that you don't get from a lot of the commentators. Yeah, absolutely. Like to the average Australian, you know, he sounds like his voice can be irritating at times and so forth. But just a couple of things that stood out, like he talking about Hazelwood's bowling and, and you know, just reading his book and talking about Nathan Lyon and just some of the insights. I like what he said about Hazelwood He's going in for the Yorkers. He said, this is where Hazelwood's really developed his game in the past 12 months after I've moved on. Is He used to just bowl those length balls, but he knows the batsmen are looking for those. And now I've seen Josh Hazelwood suddenly bowl that Yorker. These are sort of different elements that like cricket nuffies like I want to hear on how a bowler's really improved like Josh Hazelwood I think has been our best bowler in the past 12 months yes Mitchell Stark had a phenomenal tour of Sri Lanka but he's really evolved and he's really taking on that you know the number one bowler especially in Australian conditions so I really appreciated those comments from Michael Clark I, I, I think if you want to really tune in it doesn't probably come in every stint, but sometimes he does offer all those sort of completely out-of-the-box thoughts that we want to listen to. Yeah, I mean, it's a rare privilege to hear somebody who's actually captained some of these players talk about bowling plans because you're really hearing it from somebody who knows it and understands it. He was a great tactical captain, so, yeah. you know, again, a, a fine reader of the game. I think on the sort of, you know, spirit and culture piece, he's a little bit disingenuous sometimes because he's always talking about team first, team first, and as we know from, you know, a whole bunch of sources, that wasn't the view of his team. So I <laughs> All the Christmas some, reading goes I find against some, that. <laughs> I find some of that a little bit hard to swallow sometimes. So that was our commentary critique, our final one for 2016. I'm sure the Triple M commentators would would be would have been tuning into that. So uh, I think we gave them fairly good feedback. I was honest about it. I thought it was pretty good. Now let's move on to the Have A Go Your Mug promotion. It's an exciting promotion today. We've got six entrants. But if you want to go into the Have A Go Your Mug promotion, leave a review for the Australian Cricket Podcast on iTunes, whatever app you listen to the show on, and email me that you've left the review so I can see the review. And then you go in the the draw for Have A Go Your Mug mug. If you don't want to do that, sign up to Patreon for the Australian Cricket Podcast. Subscribe to the show for $5 a month or more, and you will get a Have A Go Your Mug straight away. Now, we've got five, six entrants this week. Wow. Uh, So we've got Dennis, Lee, Sloop John B, Reese, Desmond, and Steve. You're all in the draw. Now, Gav, I'm going to ask you to pull out the winner, and actually, you get a mug today. You haven't got a mug, so. Wow. Okay. So Gav pulled out, Steve, you're the winner, Steve. And he wrote, download this podcast and you will get a thoroughly enjoyable journey through what is great and not so great about Australian cricket. Expect a rant or two and some pommy bashing to boot. So Steve, send me in your address and I will send you out a have a go, your mug, mug. We're going to take a short break and when we're back and when we return, we'll be back with the Sheffield Shield wrap. Yeah, really on the rack now for Fleming, a wonderful opportunity to get... Two hat-tricks in a test match. Gals Renard bowled his heart out yesterday for India. Now the fine leg's coming up into the gully position. 
be surrounded by fieldsmen. So Damien Fleming on a hat trick. He's got it! Oh, Warren's dropped it! Can you believe that? Shane Warren, who got a hat trick at the MCG, has dropped the hat trick catch. And it was almost regulation. It was sharp, but he normally would have caught that. Welcome back to the Australian Cricket Podcast. I'm your host, Andrew Mensel. I'm here with Joe and Gav. And we just heard Shane Warne dropping a catch when Damien Fleming was on a hat trick. And the reason I've thrown that one in is because we've got Flemo uh, commentating on the Big Bash. No doubt he's going to pull out the hat trick story a couple of times. So I thought I'd get in there first. Not so fond memories for Damien Fleming, I imagine. Definitely not, but Flem always likes to talk about it as well, so <laughs> it's always great. Or Warney always talks about it, so it's it's always on. I One think. of the most famous drop catches in the annals of Australian cricket history. <laughs> now let's move on now to the Sheffield Shield wrap of the first half of the season. So they play five rounds at the beginning, then they take a break, play the big bash, come back for five more rounds of Sheffield Shield cricket. Now the halfway point, this year sees last year's finalists on top of the table. So we've got Victoria on top, followed by South Australia, Queensland, and then New South Wales. Then there's a bit of a gap in the ladder. I mean, you've got Tasmania and Western Australia at the bottom of the ladder. And those two probably will need very strong second halves to challenge for the Shield final. And let's look at the best batsmen so far in the comp. Now, player young Marcus Harris, who's moved across from Western Australia to Victoria. This is probably the source of of Glenn Maxwell's frustration, but Marcus Harris has delivered on the field with 480 runs at 60. What do you think of Harris, Gav? To be perfectly honest, I haven't seen a lot of him, but whatever couple of the games I've watched on a stream, he looks quite compact as well. And, but you know, coming across Victoria and to be given an opportunity, they still had likes of, you know, Travis Dean up there as well. They strike up a good combo up the top. He's not over-attacking. That's what I like in the opener. And we've just seen how much success sort of Matt Renshaw has had. He, he, I he's, punchy. he's yeah, punchy. Yeah, he's just so punchy. He drives the ball really well, which is good because normally our openers are very strong horizontal bat shots but he seems to be a lot better on on the drives uh, yeah he looks compact just only 24 25 reminds me of a left-handed michael slater yeah 24 25 years of age he's probably as in flashy as slater but um it's good you just need these guys to perform summer after summer we, we saw an enormous talent breakthrough last year uh Rancher being one of them but likes of travis dean and cameron bancroft just fallen behind you need them to be consistent perform two or three years in a row and then Usman Khawaja is the second leading run scorer with 432 runs in just three matches at an average of 72 and I think that's what you want to see is the test players dominating at shield level and he's done that really well so far but then young all-rounder Ashton Turner is third on the leading run scores and this is someone for the future 429 runs at over 70 including two centuries Gav can you tell us much about Ashton Turner what I watched him in the Under-19 World Cup about you know f- four years ago, and he was predominantly a- an off-spinning bowler who who batted a little bit. It seems like there's been a transformation over the last three years or four years. He's become more of a batsman who bowls a little bit. Um, him and Ashton Agar are almost similar. Could he be someone for number six, Ashton Turner, down the track? It's quite early. I, th- I think he still has a lot of development. It's just this season he started to be noticed he's played a lot of in those prime ministers 11 and the emerging 11 i think he this is a big season let's see what he can do this year with the bat ball and what he actually wants to do is he a batsman or a bowler 
I don't think he's a genuine all-rounder. I think you just can't have you know bowlers who do this and a bat of players who do this and that. You got to have one dominant role. I don't think he's a genuine all-rounder. Yeah, he looks like he's a more genuine batsman, judging from these figures. You look, you got Cameron White averaging averaging seventy six, George Bailey averaging sixty three. They're having good first half shield seasons. Three batsmen that will be looking for better second half seasons. You had the leading run scorer from last season, Ben Dunk. He's only scored one hundred and forty seven runs at fifteen this year. Callum Ferguson, after being discarded after one test, he's made 157 runs at 20 in the Shield. And then young Sammy Heaslett from Queensland had a breakthrough summer last year, has started slowly with 172 runs at 21. So he'd be looking for an improvement in that second block of Shield matches. Yeah, as I was mentioning, you know, Travis Deans, the Bancrofts, the Hazlitt, they need to do this again and again. You just can't have one breakout season. Uh, at 21 years of age, you've got to keep developing your game. And it's a perfect second-year syndrome where opposition work out where to bolt you, and you've got to overcome that. By the sounds of the season these batsmen have had, it seems like they've been worked out by the opposition. So they've got to encounter that and have a you know better season, score more efficiently, work out what mistakes they're making. And that's how you develop your game, evolve your game. So it's going to be a big challenge for them. I mean, this big ba- big bash can be good and bad for players. If you're doing well, you can lose rhythm. But if, you, if you're not doing so well, then you can go away Either you're playing in the Big Bash or you're playing a great cricket, you can build your confidence back up. Yeah, well, it's interesting. Travis Head uh, basically said that all his phenomenal shield season form in the second half, he credits a lot of that to that 100 he made on the news day. News te- Eve. News Eve. Te- uh, Big Bash te- game. Big Bash game, sorry. Because he just went out and he said, I was really struggling and I came out and just hit the ball of the middle and it just transformed into my Red Bull game. So, yeah, Big Bash could wonders, uh, do wonders for, for uh, you know, upcoming batsmen as well who are out of form or out of touch at the moment. And I should remind the listeners, if you haven't already done it, subscribe to the Big Smash Cricket Podcast for all the latest in the Big Bash news. That's me and Paul's podcast all about the dominant T20 comp in this country. Go and subscribe now. Let's continue the Shield wrap after that quick plug. There have been three standout bowlers in the competition so far. Chad Sayers with 29 wickets at just over 18. That got him in the test squad. Then you had Chris Tremaine, fresh from his one-day tour to South Africa. He's taken 27 wickets at just under 18. And then you've got left-arm spinner John Holland with 27 wickets at 18 as well. So three bowlers that have really stood out in the first half. And I would think Holland's performance, if he's fit, has to go to India. Yeah, I think big raps on on Chad Sayers, and he's been within a whisker of getting his his first Test cap a couple of times by the sounds of things. What well, you know, it'll be interesting to see how this order fits in with the you know Pattinson and Cummins coming back in the next twelve months, where somebody like a Chad Sayers fits into that sort of pecking order manners. Well, he's got overs under the belt, and he's got wickets, and he's playing cricket. So I think. Chad says at the moment is ahead of them all. And as I said in the last show, I want to see Cummins and Pattinson playing and bowling. And, you know, you've got to learn to bowl spells in Test cricket, and Cummins has to do that. Yeah, and just going back to your original question about John Holland going to India, you mentioned a lot of overs. And just watching the England-India series, yes, you know, likes of 
sort of please mo- don't mention that. It's well, giving me just nightmares talking about, about Mo and all this. They England played seven consecutive sort of Test matches in space of two and a half months in the subcontinent, including two Tests, and they got and worse every game. They, they did get worse every game, but it's the amount of overs you got to bowl. So we've got four Test matches in India. I think Stephen O'Keefe will definitely be on the flight. I think we've got to take John Holland because given O'Keefe's fitness. If he bowls 30, 40 overs, and given the way India's batting at the moment, he could potentially need to do that. And if that's the case, you need a backup because all the test matches, we're playing four test matches in a space of a month. So I think we've got to take two left arms, uh, finger spinners. Also, main reason is India have predominantly right-handers, and I think you need someone to take the ball away. Well, I've got spinner watch ready. So from the first half of the season, these are the spinners that have uh, performed in the Shield. You've got Adam Zampa, three Shield matches, nine wickets at 48. Uh, so I think Zampa we can firmly put in the white ball category at the moment. Then you've got young Mitch Swepson, young Leggy, 10 wickets at 43. Not enough for him to go to India. Stephen O'Keefe, 11 wickets at under 20. He's on the plane. Then you've got another offie, Will Somerville, who came in and took 11 wickets in the Shield of only in only two games at under 18. He could be a bolter. And then Ashton Agar's bowled pretty well. He's taken 16 wickets at 28. Not batting so well, but bowling well. So you'd throw a few of these names in the hat. Yeah, uh, Agar did make a century. I think Agar's going to be on the plane to India. I think the selectors like him. And it just as I was mentioning, just watching what happened in that India-England series... I think Ashton Agar could do that number six role. I think he's a very good batsman. He's going to bat left-handed. I know you want to throw He's not up. going to bat right-handed? Uh, well, well, he could. I mean, <laughs> play a few reverse sweeps. But I think he can almost do a role what Moen Ali did in India. He was overbowled by England because batting at four and he was bowling 40 overs, that's absolutely ridiculous. But I think he can be at least given a go to bat at number six. So you've got a left-arm option. And someone who can bat. And I think he sweeps the bowl. Well, he made two shield centuries last summer. Yes, and he's, he's made he's one this year. elegant batsman. He sort of looks a bit like David Gower sometimes. Yeah, yep. I, so, I think, I, I think that would be a brave call, though, putting him at six against India. I mean, we well, need... take him in front of in front of Maxwell as a spinning all-rounder? Yes, yes, I would. I, I mean, Glenn Maxwell hasn't done anything. I mean... Well, because he's not being picked. Well, the, 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 the thing that why England have collapsed so badly is because you need to have defence. You still need to keep out good balls. Now, I haven't watched Ashton Agars closely, but Glenn Maxwell has no defence. It's either attack, and constantly attacking, as it's proven on what England tried to do, is not going to work in India. So you've got to look at other options. Constantly reverse sweeping is not going to put the Indian bowlers because they're so good at it. Well, that's a no to Maxwell from Gav. A firm no. Well, that was our shield. Yeah, sorry, Joe. Oh, I, I was just going to say, Manners, I think we need to take probably around four to five spinners I think to India. So. I think Cricket Australia have got enough money. They should take an expanded squad and give these players experience over there. And even if they don't play, we don't want to be in the farcical situation we had in Sri Lanka where you're flying someone over, you know, a couple of days before a test match and all of a sudden they're walking out to play for Australia. And England have probably had this luxury at the time because they've had a, 
a Lion Squad based just in Dubai. So just a two-hour flight away from India. Now, we don't have that luxury because those who don't make the plane are going to be in Australia playing shield cricket. So that's the, another problem. This is where, you know, it's going to get Gab so difficult. Gab is all over it. All over it. Well, that was our shield wrap. The first half of the Sheffield Shield is done. A Victoria on top, South Australia second. I hope you enjoyed that one. Peter, I got that in for you. Now, listeners... As this is the final show of the year, I thought with Gavin Joe we'd take a moment and reflect about what's happened this year in Australian cricket, what's happened in the podcast. And I'll start things off for both of you. I would say, ultimately, for Australian cricket, this has been a disappointing year. You know, we've had a lot of notable failures. Uh, we, we didn't perform well in the World T20, an area where we're looking for improvement. We got smashed in Sri Lanka. We've got smashed here against South Africa. Uh, ultimately, as a whole, disappointing results for the men's cricket team. Yeah, I, I think the one caveat on that, men, is, is I think we saw you know, Steve Smith really a turning point or a, you know, a, a watershed moment in his career. A coming in, of age a coming, moment a coming in Hobart. In age, a coming in age in Hobart where he said, you know, this is my team. Um, this is what we stand for. This is what I expect of my players. You know, I think, you know, that will put us and particularly him in good stead for the, the years to come. I think seeing how he dealt with adversity um, is a is a real bonus. Um, the early signs of our turnaround are, are actually very good. Um, so I think for all the negativity that we felt um, from Sri Lanka and from the first two tests against South Africa, I'm actually feeling pretty positive about the team again. Obviously, the real test will come in India when we're playing back into some turning conditions. Um, but I think... I think if you have the spirit of the team right, and as we saw under Steve Waugh, they went to India once and were unsuccessful, but the actual spirit of the team was there. I think if we can be confident of that, then you know the 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 right the right outcomes will take care of themselves. But it's been a, a radical year for Australian cricket. We started off as the number one test side as the world, uh, reclaiming that from and in the New Zealand series. At then point, we thought we'd found a nucleus of players. And come the end of the year, that's completely turned around. Well, and a lot of those players have been discarded. What do you think of the last year for Australian uh, look, cricket, I, Gav? I when you reflect back... Look, I think it's given us the realistic picture of where Australian cricket is at. And I think we've had to learn the hard way, but it's also reflective on how much talent we do have or where we're lacking as well. I think it's been... Yes, the results haven't been there on the on the field, Sri Lanka and what's happened against South Africa, but it's really sort of, you know, given us this hope that what we need to focus on and going forward, I think there's going to be different sort of selections, whether that's horses for courses, what bowlers we got to have in the right condition, what batsmen kind of batsmen we're looking to mould. I think in that sense, for the future of Australian cricket, I think it's it's a year almost that we wanted to have. Yes, didn't have the results. Well, I didn't want to have all these results. Bad yeah, results. We, we, we never do. But I think this year... We needed it. We almost needed it because that would just make us stronger going forward, whether that's you know 12 months, Ashes time here... And Ashes still remains the pinnacle in, in winning in the Test match. And, you know, we've got an Ashes tour coming up, 12 months' time. We'll go to England. Yes, subcontinent is going to be scars. And whether what's the realistic objective for India? 
as well. The players got to believe they can win. Can not they... to get embarrassed. Yeah, I think so. I not think to lose I, every I... game by an innings. Yeah, I think I think if they if, if Australia can win a Test match in India, Mate, that's a bridge too far already. Well, that's what we're thinking as well. But if they can. I think we're in the right state. I think India are almost becoming invincible at home at the moment. So you've got to have realistic goals. Not and If they can win the series, it will be a miracle. But And things can happen. But let's see if we've really improved from Sri Lanka when we go across to India. But it's a year that I think Australian cricket had to have. And I think what's interesting about the makeup of the Australian team is it's now clear there are real four leaders within that team and that's Smith, Warner, Hazelnut and Stark. That core group off field and on field are the leaders. I think also a pos- in a positive note we saw a real growth in Australian cricket generally. The Big Bash has given a massive impetus to the game in this country. We've got the women, the women's Big Bash League was such a success last season so we've seen domestic cricket perhaps in never a better spot than it is right now so in in all the health of Australian cricket sounds is good and I sound like James Sutherland now (laughs) trying to do a marketing speech about Cricket Australia but generally that's the positive side to what has been disappointing on the field. I think we're going to go back to our original uh, way of playing shield cricket not too much experimentation the pitchers leave them up to the curators, make them sort of diversified to ensure that we produce the cricketers that we did and they can handle the different conditions. I think that's probably one of the goals for next year. Maybe a little bit more planning. I think Trent Woodhill hit the nail on the head. Matador Cup this year could have been played, I think, end of the summer because we're going to head into the Champions Trophy. I think that's probably what we could have looked at. But... As I said, these are the. It's a year that Australian cricket, in terms of administration, players, selection, curators, whatever it is, I think it's a year that we had to have. Any highlights from the year before we move on? Well, I just think, um, as a lover of Test cricket, I I love the evenness of of what we've got at the moment. I think on their day, India, Pakistan, Australia, England, and New Zealand, South can Africa, all, South Africa, obviously, can all win. Um, test matches. So I think the state of test cricket is really healthy yeah. from a competition perspective. Absolutely. and Great well, viewing too. Yeah, mm. absolutely. And I was amazed. I mean, the, we spoke about the crowd at the Gabba. Boxing Day will get a full house. The, the two test matches in India, Menas, against England, uh, in Bombay and in Chennai, were packed. That's what you want to see. England always get the crowd. Also, there were home teams which were losing. As well, we saw South Africa come over here and beat us. We saw Pakistan draw a series in England. We saw England beat South Africa early in the year, which is good for cricket. Last few years, it's been a home conditions dominance. That's changed in the past 12 months. Uh, that's fantastic. West Indies pushed uh, Pakistan in the subcontinent. You know, they could have even won a couple of test matches. And I think that's been the highlight for test cricket just around the world as well. It's certainly been a strong year for cricket generally, and I think it's been a pretty good year for the Australian Cricket Podcast. I want to thank all the Patreon subscribers for contributing to the show all year. That money goes to buying things like new equipment to help get the best sound out of people like Gav and Joe here. I want to thank all the people that have taken the time to leave reviews for the show on iTunes or or on any application. Um, Thank you so much for all the people that send in emails, tweets, Facebook messages. I really appreciate all the feedback. If sometimes I haven't responded, it is only through absent-mindedness, but not through lack of appreciation. I want to thank all the listeners all over the world who download and listen to the show. There's been well over 100,000 downloads this year, 
And it's just amazing that wherever you are, that you listen to the show and um, take the time to hear us talk about cricket. I think podcasts are a great means of bringing people together through shared passions. And I hope this podcast has done that in the last year. And finally, I want to thank all the guests and panellists that have come on this year. This show, I made an effort to get a, a lot more people in and on the show and I think I've achieved that I've got journalists from all around the world had three former test cricketers some stars from the cricket world and it's just been great to have those voices come in and contribute to the show obviously without them the show's nothing without the journalists cricket tragics and friends that take the time out of their busy schedule to come in and make the show what it is and uh, I really appreciate all the people that have come in Big thanks to you, Menas. Just to listeners out there, he spends enormous t- amount of time trying to get all these sort of the notes together, the panellists together, and he always wants to take the show to the next level. And I'm sure he's going to do that in 2017. You put in the hard work, you, you, you know, give us the best mics, the equipment, and you know, give us all the heads up. Fantastic. Thanks for all your effort and makes the show really worthwhile for not just us to come on board, but all the listeners who listen out there. I'm getting quite emotional, Gav. Thank you for that one. Uh, Well, guys, thank you so much for coming into the show. Thanks to all the listeners for all their support during the year. Uh, We'll be back next year. The idea is to keep this podcast independent and opinionated. So, again, that'll be the aim. Uh, Joe, have a As you say with your Cricket Australia top on manners. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'm serious. I wear it now uh, for every podcast. Now, listeners, thank you so much. We'll be back next year. If you haven't already done, subscribe to the Big Smash Cricket Podcast. Enjoy your holidays and see you next year. Podcast Network. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.